Welcome to the interview from I by IMD. This week's host is Katerina Lang, IMD's Affiliate Professor of Leadership. She's joined by Nicholas Christakis of Yale University. Dear Nicholas, thank you very much for being here. As Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University, you direct the Human Nature Lab. And as sociologist and physician, you have a very calibrated view on our post-pandemic world that you describe in your book, Apollo's Arrow. Thank you very much for being here and taking us through some of the key messages of your work. Katarina, thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege. You know, it's always difficult to give like a thumbnail sketch of a whole book, but I suppose if I had to, what I would say about it is the following. This way we have come to live right now during this time of plague, during this once in a century event, feels very alien and unnatural to us. Hmm. But it's actually neither of those things. Plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us. We think it's crazy that we have to live the way that we do. But plagues are in the Bible. They're in the Iliad. You know, the oldest work of Western fiction begins with a plague. They're in Shakespeare. They're in Cervantes. So our ancestors had to cope with this threat. They reduced their experience to our religious traditions and our literary traditions. We had scientists who also understood and had studied this threat. And yet we were caught off guard by this fundamentally human experience. And you say the plague, these big events shaping our world, they also have a positive outcome. They also do something. They also spur innovation and they drive evolution, if you like. Plagues are the ultimate disruptors, serious plagues. First of all, it's important to draw certain distinctions. Plagues have been a feature of human experience for thousands of years, at least since the agricultural revolution and since we invented cities. So we domesticate animals and plants 12 to 10,000 years ago. We invent cities 8 to 10,000 years ago. And for these many thousands of years, we have been subject to these different kinds of plagues, which includes uh, the Black Death, It includes Ebola, it includes cholera and smallpox and all kinds of epidemics. A subset of those epidemics are respiratory pandemics, which we also have had many experiences with. And you can look at the history of respiratory pandemics going back 300 years or certainly 100 years we have data on respiratory pandemics. So plagues have been a disruptive feature of human experience for thousands of years. Now, they cause all kinds of bad things, let's be clear. They cause death and destruction, but they also can reshape society in interesting ways. People have made the argument, for example, that after the Black Death in the 14th century, the first wave of the bubonic plague that afflicted Europe, it became very clear to the citizenry that their elites were unable to do anything. The priests couldn't stop the plague. The rulers couldn't stop the plague. The doctors couldn't stop the plague. And many have argued that because of this loss of confidence, we had a ferment in Europe, for instance, that contributed to the Reformation because the priests were shown to be ineffective. That led to new forms of government and actually foundational advances in capitalism that we began to see the market in a different way because, you know, the rulers weren't effective. And that it even contributed to innovations in the sciences. All of these changes were prompted by the plague. So on the issue of do plagues serve a kind of disruptive function? Uh, for sure, the answer is yes, like anything else. But I I wouldn't go so far as to say that they're a good thing <laughs> because, of, because of that. Maybe it's a form of resilience to see the learning out of a plague, to see the learning out of such a crisis, to see how can we become stronger, kinder, more social after this? 
there are these contrasting tendencies. There's a kind of every man for himself kind of attitude, but there's also a let's band together to confront the shared threat attitude. Mm -hmm. We've seen that playing out around the world today with respect to the coronavirus pandemic. But you're absolutely right that one of the ironies of the way we had to confront the plague is that we had to band together to live apart. Like, I wear my mask, that sends a signal to you that you should wear your mask, so that you wear your mask, and we protect each other that way. Or that the state implements different sorts of rules. So we had to band together to live apart. And that highlights one of the fundamental tensions of a plague. There are certain kinds of phenomena that can be understood at and confronted at multiple levels. So it's clearly the case that when the germ infects my body, it destroys my body, my individual body. But it is also the case that an epidemic is intrinsically a social process. It's a contagious disease. It's not a cancer that spontaneously arose in my body and killed me. I got the pathogen from someone else. And there's a kind of mathematics to understanding how the germ might spread from person to person. Incidentally, there's a similar mathematics that governs how our response to the pandemic spreads from person to person. But here's a metaphor I like to use to illustrate this idea, drawn from high school chemistry. And as we all learned in high school chemistry, there are different forms of carbon. You can take the element carbon, you can take the same carbon atoms, and you assemble them one way, and you get graphite, which is soft and dark. Or you take the same carbon atoms and assemble them another way, and you get diamond, which is hard and clear. And there are two key intellectual ideas there. First of all, these properties of softness and darkness and hardness and clearness are not properties of the carbon atoms. They're properties of the collection of carbon atoms. And second, which properties you get depends on how you connect the carbon atoms to each other. Connect them one way, you get one set of properties. Take the same carbon atoms and connect them another way, you get a completely different set of properties. And it is the same with human groups. You can take a group of people and connect them one way, and they are more prone to infection. Epidemics spread more easily in the people if they're connected this way than in some other way. Incidentally, the same kind of mathematics and understanding applies to other kinds of business-relevant practices. For example, you can take a group of employees and connect them one way, and they are cooperative and innovative and happy in addition to being healthy. Or you take the same human capital, the same people, and connect them a different way, and they're none of those properties. They're not cooperative. They're not innovative. They're unhappy, and they're prone to the spread of epidemics. So the structure of human social interactions is highly relevant to these processes, including epidemics. And therefore, when we want to understand epidemics, it's not enough just to look at the individual response, either biologically in terms of what their body does, mm or behaviorally in terms of what the individual does, we must also look at this other collective level. What does the group do? And what are the spreading dynamics, for example, of the germ in the population? Fascinating. I would love to move the conversation to what can we do in the recovery phase? And I think there are three themes in there that I would like to know a little bit more from you about it. On the one side, let's look at the individual. The pandemic has appended our professional and private lives. As many of us had to work from home, routines and habits were disrupted and are now questioned. We ask questions such as, does it really make sense to commute two hours daily for a job that I did productively from home for the last 18 months? Does my work provide enough meaning to sacrifice major parts of my family life to it? And we have seen a public debate that beyond finding new ways to work also includes the search for meaning, finding purpose and personal growth. 
Nicholas, can you give us a bit of context and data points from your research that might serve as guidance? There's no doubt that there will be many changes as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, but which ones are a little difficult still to forecast? You mentioned business meetings. I think the idea that you would fly a long distance and spend the night for a routine one-hour business meeting the next day is over. I, I don't think anyone is going to want to do that anymore. Of course, business will still have to be conducted face-to-face. -face. I think it's very important to judge the integrity and, and intelligence of the people you're interacting with face-to-face. -face. But I think for many routine meetings, that's going to be over. Yeah. I think, you know, you mentioned working from home. I think many businesses and employees are going to see the rationale for this. Businesses are going to see it, they don't need as much office space. They can basically shift the cost to employees. So there will be many such changes. Now, on the issue of meaning, mm. one of the things that plagues do is they prompt in people a kind of a search for meaning. And if you think about it, it's pretty logical. People are often isolated at home. They have a lot of time for reflection. There's a lot of conversation about mortality. Now, this particular plague wasn't quite so deadly, but it's deadly. It kills 1% of the people it infects. So people are aware that death is walking the streets. And this prompts a search for meaning. And it, it, historically, often uh, it's been shown to increase religiosity and public religious observances. People uh, get more religious during times of plague. That has happened during this one as well. In the United States, for example, we have lots of evidence that people were praying more. Even though churches were closed and synagogues and temples, they were uh, remotely attending them and so on. And that increase in religion is an illustration mm -hmm. of the search for meaning, but it's not just that. There were other manifestations of a search for meaning. For example, many healthcare workers suddenly saw a new relevance of their job. We saw a boom in applications to nursing and medical school because people thought there's meaning in this work. And many people with more plebeian occupations, like truck drivers, for example, they saw new meaning in their work. They, they could see their central importance in the economy in transporting goods to people who are homebound, for example and in distributing goods. So there were many, many ways in which people found new meaning in their occupational lives as part of the pandemic. But there were further manifestations as well. It is often the case that these plagues prompt a kind of a political recalibration. And we're already seeing that in the United States. And we saw this in the United States in the summer of, of 2020. We saw, for example, the Black Lives Matter protests. Now, many people said that those protests reflected the decades-long history of police violence in the United States. And for sure that's true. And other people said this reflected the fact that people were out of work and protests rise and people are out of work. And that's true. And other people said that it had to do with the, the fact that people were homebound and bored, and so they took to the streets. And that's true. And other people said it had to do with the summer, that we see protests and, and riots more in the summer. And that's true. But I also think that it reflected the search for meaning. I think people were asking themselves, what kind of society do I want to live in? What is a just society? And that this too was in the background of those protests. Incidentally, I think the same thing happened with the right-wing protests with a January 6th insurrection and riot at the American Capitol. One of the things that's amazed me about that is the protesters went there without masks. They were proud of what they were doing. They made no effort to conceal their identity. And they saw what they were doing as a search for patriotism. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a kind of political ferment that reflected the search for meaning 
that was in turn prompted by the pandemic and that is finally typical of, mm. of pandemics. Mm. I think that sits well with the other trend you've identified in your book, and this is how we human beings have the tendency to respond boldly when it comes to overcoming substantial health and death threats. This is so very human. Nicholas, do you agree with journalists who predict roaring 20s like 100 years ago? And what would be your advice for individuals, for companies and societies to prepare for that? Yes, I think that's very likely, and I do discuss that in Apollo's Arrow. I think you can think of pandemics as having three phases. The first is the immediate phase, then there's the intermediate phase, then there's the post-pandemic phase. The first phase of a pandemic is when we are feeling the biological and epidemiological shock of the virus. Mm. What has happened to us right now is something very unusual in the history of our species. A new pathogen has been introduced into our midst, and it's going to circulate among us forever. This virus is going to spread and spread and spread, and it's going to become endemic. It's never going to go away. It's always going to be in the background. And so the virus is sweeping through the human population right now. Everyone on the planet, with few exceptions, will either be infected with the virus or will be vaccinated. And during this period of time, which will last until sometime in 2022, we are feeling the biological and epidemiological impact of the virus. But when we finally get to the point where the great majority of people have acquired immunity, let's say 90% of people, we will reach something known as the herd immunity threshold. And this will mark the end of the immediate pandemic period. It's like a tsunami, a water wave washing ashore that causes great destruction. And finally, the water recedes. But now the countryside has been devastated. We have to clean up the mess. So the wave of the virus will end. But the devastation, the clinical, psychological, social, and economic devastation that it leaves behind it will require our attention. And that's the intermediate phase of the pandemic. Let's not forget, millions of children have missed school. Millions of people will have loved ones who died. Millions of businesses have closed. Millions of people have quit their jobs or have lost their jobs. We are borrowing trillions of dollars from the future to deal with the present. We also have to recognize that it's not just that people who die probably five times as many people as die of COVID will become disabled by it, survive and be disabled. They will require our attention. So all of these problems, all of these challenges will need to be confronted, especially during the intermediate period, which will last until 2024 approximately. But then we will enter the post-pandemic period. And I think that is going to be a little bit of a party, a kind of roaring 20s of the 21st century similar to a roaring 20s of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. I think people will relentlessly seek out social interactions in, in restaurants and nightclubs and, and sporting events and political rallies and musical concerts. I, I think we might see some loosening of sexual mores, for example. I think it's a natural response. People have been cooped up from the plague for so long that now suddenly they will be released from that. I think we're going to see spending during times of plague in the past and now savings rates tend to skyrocket. People save their money. They're risk averse. They're worried about stuff. They conserve their resources. But now when the plague is over, people will spend. I think we'll see an efflorescence of the arts. We're going to see an entrepreneurship boom, I believe, for a host of reasons, including the disruptive way the plague has prompted all kinds of new technologies, from Zoom communications to vaccine platforms to drone and robotic delivery. In so many sectors, we're going to see innovations prompted. And so I do think we're going to be in that post-pandemic period 
for a while in a kind of roaring 20s of the 21st century. Yes. Wow. During the pandemic, the state interfered on many levels with the way we work, we live and travel. There were massive interventions in healthcare systems, private markets and political decision making. Given the unpredictability of the events in the pandemic, that seemed justified. However, this can't be the way forward in a democratic world. How do you envision the balance between the power of the state and the public world? Plagues are intrinsically a collective threat. They're like an invading army. You, you cannot fight an invading army alone, right? And even if every person in a disorganized way, if every citizen went to the frontier, that also is not effective. You need a state actor to coordinate and organize the defense against an invading army. So collective threats like uh, climate change, nuclear proliferation, pandemic disease require state action, intrinsically so. And so one of the things that often happens during times of plague is that the role of the public sector rises. And often there's a kind of leftward tilt in politics as a result of this, uh, because the state has to function. Now, it is essential that the state be competent. If the state is incompetent, then I think it, it's a complicated picture. We can have a kind of rightward tilt where we get sort of strongman rule, you know, only I can fix it mm. uh, kind of response. Mm. But if the state is competent and people see that the state, which was required to confront this collective threat, now is functioning well, it can provide an example of the kinds of things that state power can do. Furthermore, It's helpful when you think about plagues to draw a distinction between the destruction that a plague does from the destruction that a war does. A war it destroys capital and labor, right? But a plague is like a neutron bomb. You just kill the people, but you leave the capital intact, the roads, the gold, the mines, the fields, the, the cities. Those are all intact. And so if you look at the history of a serious epidemic disease, what you typically see is that for a 40-year period after an epidemic, you see a rise in real wages peaking at around 20 years because capital is plentiful, but labor is dear. Mm -hmm. So you see a bidding up of wages and you see a decline in real interest rates. There's so much capital chasing investment that this is the typical pattern. Now we're talking about serious pandemics. I need to be clear that with COVID, it could be a little different, partly because COVID has spared the young working age adults and has killed mostly the elderly. So the dynamics are, can be a little different, but nevertheless, right now around the world, we are seeing a, a rise in, in labor demands. We're seeing people saying, you know, I want different working conditions. I want more sick leave. I want more childcare. I want higher wages. Because of my search for meaning, you know, it wasn't worth it to me to work in this job for these wages. Or, you know, I was 62 and I'm just going to retire early and remove all those people from the labor market, which then has a cascade effect. So because of the disruption, the search for meaning, the labor capital uh, calculation, the kind of necessity of public and state action, all of these things I think are going to create a very rich stew for uh, <laughs> political movements uh, in the coming years. Wow. I would like to end on a higher note, because you say in your book, plagues cause a lot of grief and there's a lot of hardship there. And, and we all felt that in the last month. But plagues could also elicit kindness, courage, social cooperation and ingenuity. You also say the arc of evolutionary history is long, but it bends towards goodness. What would be for you the good message or the good thing coming out of this pandemic crisis? 
I think that there's been a long awareness by observers of plagues going back centuries that plagues in an idealized way might highlight our shared humanity. In other words, we're all vulnerable to the predations of contagious disease. And this is an old idea, actually. In the third century of the Common Era, when a devastating plague was afflicting Rome and 5,000 Roman citizens were dying every day, St. Cyprian said, it disturbs some that this mortality is common to us with others. And yet what is there in this world which is not common to us with others? So long as we are here in the world, we are associated with the human race in fleshly equality. Yeah. So this is an old idea that, you know, we're all soft on the outside and death is in the streets. And shouldn't we work together to confront it? And there is a there is absolutely the case in which during every plague you see acts of heroism, of kindness and cooperation, doctors and nurses risking their lives to care for others, neighbors visiting each other, state actors organizing people to respond to the threat, whether it's in Venice during the Black Death or in the United States during COVID-19. So you see all of these qualities. Absolutely you do. And I think by and large, we've had a lot of slip-ups with the pandemic, no doubt. But I'd like also to accentuate some of the things we've done that are miraculous. We've been talking about different illustrations of ways in which human beings have cooperated to deal with the plague. But one of the most miraculous ways is, in fact, that we invented a vaccine. Just think about what that means. Mm -hmm. How and why did we invent these vaccines? Well, it turns out that it took centuries of scientific cooperation. The fact that we are a species capable of sharing knowledge with each other and transmitting that knowledge across time and space. We accumulated this knowledge over centuries. Over decades, people volunteered to be a part of medical studies. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, all of this knowledge was brought to bear. Thousands of doctors and scientists worked together around the world. Thousands of entrepreneurs and business people worked together and made investments. Thousands of subjects volunteered for the clinical trials. It was a magnificent illustration, if you think about it, not so much or just of our capacity for commerce, but rather our capacity for cooperation, that we worked together to invent yeah. these magnificent things, yeah. which are actually so powerful and effective in helping us to confront this shared enemy. Thank you very, very much, Nicholas. This is wonderful ending on such a positive note. That's fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege. To hear more expert analysis from IMD, you can find us wherever good podcasts are found. For more to read, you can go to iBuyIMD Online, which offers exclusive business intelligence from the brightest thinkers in academia and society, written by experts for experts. <laughs>